This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Good morning, Equalizer Extra subscribers. It's time for another episode of the Equalizer Podcast. Episode 44 of the Equalizer podcast as we come to the end of January 2019. My name is Dan Loletta. Claire Watkins is here. Kieran Tavum is with us as well from Europe. And let's get right to Kieran. Last week we were, well, I wasn't here last week, but we were right on top of the France match. And the U.S. didn't play really well, so that was a very easy topic to get into. This time, U.S. played better, beat Spain. But that was on Tuesday, so a lot of time to sit on it. But Kieran was at both matches. Give us a sense, Kieran. What was different about the Spain match other than the opponent? What was different about the U.S.? Yeah, I think, you know, the most important thing and the thing that I got from the second match was the changes that Jill Ellis made, I think, made the U.S. more robust. And I think they were were better defensively against the Spanish than they were against the French. I think Julia made a big difference in that U.S. midfield three. I think we saw against the, the France team that they lost to on, on last Saturday, Amandine Henri, I said on the podcast last week, really controlled the midfield, whereas I think this time round, we saw Julia, we saw Lindsay Horan keep her place, but we saw Ertz come in, we saw Rose Lavelle come in. I thought Rose Lavelle had a really good first 45 minutes, really ran at the Spanish defence and, and tried to create chances, and that was something that the US were unable to do in the first match against France. And I thought Juliet was was someone that marshaled the midfield really well and protected that back four. I, I said it in the piece that I wrote for Equaliser that Rose Lavelle had, had spoken to me earlier that week and said that Julie was someone that really liked to talk a lot on the pitch and really direct players. And there were times in the game against Spain where the atmosphere was maybe a little bit on the quiet side and the position that I had sat just, a, you know, wasn't too far back. I could hear Julia above everyone else, really directing play, really trying to give out instructions. And I really think that she's becoming uh, an important part of this US team and becoming a bit of a leader as well. And I, I really think she played a big part in why they were better. They were able to stifle the Spanish midfield. Spain don't have the quality that France do. There's no, there's no getting away from that. A couple of familiar players to, to those in the US, Vicky Lasada being one, obviously played for the Western New York Flash in, in the NWSL a few years ago. But, I think that the U.S. were largely untroubled against Spain. There were a couple of moments where Spain got in behind the back four. But I still think that there are things the U.S. need to work on. There were, if we look at the number of chances that they actually created, the number of chances that they had, wasn't a huge number. But as we mentioned in the podcast last week, U.S. still coming off of an eight-week break or maybe even a little bit longer than that since the game they played against Scotland at the start of November. They are essentially in pre-season at the moment. It's going to take them a little bit of time to get their sharpness and, and really get up to, to top gear. But they were better in, against Spain than they were against France, no doubt about that. All right, so two things I'll throw out. and We'll get Claire to get in on these, too. Uh, we can do agree, disagree here. I think over the last year, maybe a little bit more, it's become very obvious that Julie Ertz is the most irreplaceable player on the U.S. team, not necessarily the best but the most irreplaceable. And I also thought Spain in this match had the right game plan to beat the U.S., but they just couldn't quite execute it well enough. They're not quite good enough yet, but I think Spain had a blueprint that, if you have the right players, could work. I think, yeah, no, I agree on both counts. I would say that the Julie Ertz thing is very interesting to me in that I guess I... 
am a little bit of a contrarian in that I'm still, as someone who watches her play for Chicago, I'm still not sure playing the six for the U.S. is her most natural position, but I also have to admit that her value there just can't be denied. I think, you know, Kieran talked about that, obviously, a little bit. Um, she's a very vocal presence on the field, and her kind of what she sees um, – and if you think about it, too, if she's playing the six with kind of a center back's brain, you know, her kind of directing traffic in front of her could be incredibly important um, to the cohesion for the U.S. Um, and then to your second point about Spain, I thought Spain put some good sequences together. Um, but it's like what Kieran said, too. Spain is a team that is developing. They're growing. They're certainly much better than they have been in the past, but they're just not at the same level as the U S right now. And so even though the U S are, are a bit individually out of form, I don't think there was a ton of danger there in that second game that, uh, that, that they were really in, in danger of, of losing that one. And they're starting to look in stretches like the Spanish men, which tells me, I mean, obviously the Spanish men are very successful, so you, it's a good team to emulate, but it tells me that they're really getting into the developmental end of it because they have that, formula that's the big thing with u.s soccer right is we don't have a way that we play but there is a way that they play soccer in spain and that women's team is getting to that point where it looks like hey this is spanish soccer which is usually more often than not pretty good it's it's good but i i would never have said that any point in that game did they look particularly dangerous but no, you're right, they, no, you're no. right. in the midfield yeah. but not for chances to right. finish um but no, I agree. I think that it's cool. Yeah, you're seeing kind of the national identity sort of form in this uh, Spain team that we haven't seen in the past. And yeah, it's exciting to see. Yeah, and what about Ertz? Because, um, you know, we've talked a lot about Huerta and the whole right back thing and how, you know, she's looking for a club to play there. Could it actually benefit Ertz to play center back for club to help her with playing in the midfield for country? Uh, possibly. Yeah. I mean, I think it's always beneficial for a holding midfielder to know what's going on behind her. So to play that centre-back role gives you that kind of education and, and that opportunity to, to see the whole field. You know, when you're playing as a centre-back, you have, other than the goalkeeper, you have every single player in front of you or beside you. So you can see the whole pitch. You can see exactly what's going on in front of you. So if you're playing a holding midfield, if you've played as a centre-back, you know exactly what's going on behind you. So, yeah, I mean, I, I've always liked Ertz as a six. I mean, I, I Claire sees her a lot more than I do playing for Chicago. I watch Chicago games on NWSL streams, but there's nothing better than watching them up close. And I know Claire goes to pretty much every home game. But I remember when, when Ertz was drafted and, and started her career in Chicago and pretty much played as a six. I've always liked her in that role. And it was really with the US that she started out as a centre-back. And, and I think, as I say, when I saw that game against Spain and I saw the way that she she really led and was very vocal and really directed play, they were a lot more solid because against France, they were unable to deal with the onslaught of attacks that they had time after time after time because they didn't have what you would describe as that enforcer in midfield. Now, you know, you have someone like Juliet as, as an example, but you also have... Uh, we also saw McCall Zaboni and, and Sam Mewis get some minutes in that game as well. So there's options there for Jill Ellis. But I, I do think that, that, that Julie is the leading candidate to play that six at the moment. But she's definitely got some competition. What about um, positives and negatives? I know you guys talked about press in the France game that maybe she was the best player. I don't think she was the best player against Spain. But love the fact that the not that she scored the goal, but the way she scored the goal, that she took on her defender, that she didn't make a pass, that she, you know, that she said, all right, this is a moment where I can take over this game. And she scored that goal. So I thought press was a very big positive. Uh, I thought the center backs were good. I thought Ertz was good. And then on the questionable side of things, um, I don't, and I don't want to criticize the outside back specifically, you know, you know, Emily Fox is taking a lot of heat, but she's an inexperienced player and everybody has their welcome to international soccer moment. I think she certainly had that giving up the goal in the France game. But I'm just very confused about 
the outside back depth and bringing Tierna Davidson back in and playing her wide like that, I thought was an odd move considering uh, the scope of the matches, which I almost think, and I don't say Jill Ellis tried to lose the France game, but I don't think she minded losing the France game. I don't think Jill Ellis wanted to go into the World Cup on a 38-match unbeaten run, and that was a pretty good game to lose. Yeah, I thought, yeah, specifically, so bringing Tierna Davidson into the France game as kind of your true depth outside back made some kind of twisted sense to me. Having her go in again against Spain was a little bit surprising in that I I wonder if this is now kind of a, a plan or an avenue that's being set with U.S. soccer for her utilization, assuming Abby Dahlkemper has that second center back uh, spot kind of lined up as a starter. Um, yeah, I don't know either. I think um, I think it's interesting. I think it seems that obviously with the Spain game, and I don't think we've brought this up again up yet, but um, you know, it seemed like U.S. Soccer was messing around with some gamesmanship when it comes to who they you know designated as hurt or not. Um, for this for the France game and who Glad miraculously recovered uh, <laughs> later um, and I think so that I think was interesting because uh, as it turns out it really looks like Kelly O'Hara and Casey Short really did were like really were not available for either of these games um, and I think that they are still a big part of the U.S.'s outside back plan but they were truly unavailable so I think that um It'll be really interesting to see. That's just the ongoing storyline has been for many years and I guess will be going into 2019 now because, yeah, I think that there are some choice starters who are having trouble getting healthy and the backups are center backs mostly, which is uh, not kind of what you want going into a, a large tournament. But yeah, we'll see. Well, it's not how Ellis wants to play either. She wants her outside backs getting high. And she already had Sonnet on the right-hand side who doesn't get up the field very much because, as you said, she's a center back. I mean, they basically had center backs playing playing defense most of that time, except for Dunn a little bit and Fox. It was pretty much the center back show on the back line. Mm-hmm. And uh, I agree with what you guys said last week about Dunn in midfield against France. I don't like it. It works for her on the courage to some extent. Don't think it works for her on the national team. I think she's either a defender or you can put her wide up top. But I do think her best spot, much to her dismay, I think, is outside back. I think she maybe would rather be somewhere else. Although I think ultimately what she really wants is to just be somewhere and stick there. And that doesn't seem like that's ever going to happen. Well, actually, I, I like that you bring that up because um, I think you're right. I think that Crystal Dunn at this point is, is thriving in kind of that pushing forward outside back setting. That's a little bit where my brain is at too, when it comes to Julie Ertz at the number six, I'm not sure Julie Ertz loves playing that role. And I don't say that with inside information. It's really not. It's just kind of, I think that it's, we are moving into a very natural part of this U.S. U.S. women's national team cycle, where we have a lot of incredibly talented people who Jill Ellis would like to get on the field together. And that's still sometimes pushing even, you know, Kristen press on the wing who has clearly excelled so far, you know, even just in 2019, but that's obviously not where she would prefer to be if she had, you know, a say in where she would be. So I think that it's the same conversation that we've been having for a very long time is that we have some really exceptional athletes who are kind of finding their way inside a U.S. system, which really just wants to get the top 11 players on the field together, uh, which, you know, you can argue for or against that strategy, but that still seems very much to be the U.S.'s, you know, M.O. at this point. Karen, I'm going to put you on the spot with this one, but Morgan, not the, not her best two games? Uh, Alex Morgan or Morgan Bryan? Well, I meant Alex Morgan, but we could go with either one. Well, Morgan Bryan didn't play the second game, so I should have cottoned on that it was Alex Morgan. Um, look, Alex didn't get an awful lot of service. I think, you know, she is an incredibly no, talented individual and she has the ability to create opportunities for herself. But 
the France game in particular, she was almost an isolated figure because she was relying on players behind her giving her some service and they just weren't able to do that. You know, we talked about Kristen Press. Kristen Press was by far the best player for me in that France game. But Kristen Press isn't necessarily looking to serve opportunities for Alex Morgan when she gets the ball. She is a striker and her main focus is trying to get an effort on goal. She's not going to be looking to try and play a ball into the box for Alex Morgan. And and I guess that's one of the differences when you have someone like Kristen Press playing because she is so kind of focused on 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 getting a shot off and, and scoring. Whereas when you have Megan Rapinoe, I'm not in any way saying that Kristen is a selfish player, but Megan Rapinoe's role is very different. Her role is very much about looking for that central forward and trying to serve up opportunities for them. So I, I actually thought Alex played quite well in the second game. She maybe dropped a little bit deeper than she did in the France game, tried to pick up the ball, tried to kind of maybe make things happen a little bit more than she did in the first game. But yeah, I mean, look, after the 2018 that she had and you come away from two matches where she hasn't scored, of course, she's going to be under the microscope. But she played against a very good French team uh, where Wendy Renard was very, very kind of close to her and and didn't give her much opportunity. And then in Spain, you know, I I thought she did okay. Um, Her link up play was probably very good. I don't know how much you get to see when you watch it on TV, but certainly watching it from, from from the stands. You got to see the work that Alex was doing, brought other players into play, really tried to link up with her midfielders and her wing players uh, and, and did, you know, did a good job. But as in terms of being a threat in front of goal, I have to agree with you. It was two of her quieter matches for sure. All right. I agree with everything you said there. That's the end of segment one on the podcast. We'll come back. That's the U.S. Next up, by the way, is She Believes Cup, which starts at the end of February. But what is going on in Australia? We'll talk about that. A couple other little tidbits from around women's soccer. With Kieran and Claire, I'm Dan. This is episode 44 of the Equalizer Podcast. Segment two, episode 44 of the Equalizer podcast. Claire Watkins in her usual spot. I'm Dan Lawletta. And this one will drop on Monday, which happens to be Kieran Tavum's birthday. Won't tell you how old he is, but happy birthday, Kieran. Thank you very much. I'm happy to say I'm 36 years old. You, I can <laughs> okay. say you didn't have to. There, are, Let's just say there are Equalizer staff members that keep their age under a pretty good (laughs) (laughs) but so here and happy 36th birthday thank you my friend Um, cheers australia you know um it's an open secret that i spent the last couple weeks watching a lot of tennis in australia but what is going on with their women's soccer team i know the news had was pretty fresh last weekend on the pod recording and finally we got one piece that came out this week that actually had some interesting information about players and whatnot, you know, quotes from players. They were all obviously anonymous, but very unusual situation with Alan Stajic down in Australia, the Federation um, trying to emulate us soccer by saying as little as possible. Stajic hasn't spoken again, obviously, uh, but the play, you know, the player, this is, this does not seem like the player's, pushed him out and if they did it almost seems like maybe they did it by accident what what i mean what are we making of this yeah i mean i'm not i feel like i still know so little about um the nature of the dismissal um well here's the thing right is the picture that we're seeing coming out is of what the FA would describe as a toxic working environment, which you don't want to, you know, but with no other information, it's hard to verify that. Um, I think probably the biggest thing for us as well with, you know, the players and supporters is that um, the timing of it is so drastic. Um, and, And that's the thing too, where I think everyone assumes that there is, 
one underlying story here that we're not being told, which was the hinge for them um, dismissing him so close to the World Cup. Uh, but it's also possible that that story may never come out. Like, I, I don't know. I, I really, uh, I, I don't know a ton of what to say about this one because it still just seems like such a mystery. Best thing I've seen so far is on the Sydney Morning Herald by Dominic Bossi. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, so check that out. It's, it's also, I retweeted it off my timeline if you're looking for it. And that's the one that actually had some quotes from players involved. My, my the question that lingers for me is this does not seem to be code of conduct related where there was an incident and someone found out about it and they had to let him go immediately. So it seems more, like you said, Claire, the working environment that they had. So, okay, that's a fair reason to get rid of a coach. However, they've known about it since July, or they started to know about it since July, and it sounds like they blindsided him a week ago. So if it was not something that you had to say, okay, we can't possibly let him be part of our federation for another day, then how come at no point between July and last week does it seem like anybody pulled him aside? Maybe they did, but it doesn't seem like anybody pulled him aside and said, hey, we've got concerns A, B, and C. Can we work to make them better? Right. That's the main... It, it definitely makes you think that the communication lines between you know, the entire Matilda structure and the FA are probably a little bit broken, even when you think about the fact that they only found out about issues through anonymous surveys um, and then failed to relay those back to the coaching staff. Um, obviously seems like there are a lot of players who still feel very in the... Well, communication lines, uh, I believe it was Claire Polkinghorn who said this week that the players at this point don't know anything more than the general public do. So the FA is not being properly communicative with their player pool, um, either letting them know the severity of the issues or just even giving them the reason for why their head coach was just let go, um, which speaks itself to some deeper dysfunction going on within that program that uh, apparently just could not wait until after the World Cup was over. And I want to say, like, I'm, I'm not advocating for holding on to a toxic uh, head figure no, because you have either. a big tournament coming up. But if you're also not going to be communicative about the severity of, of the issue, um, you're not, you're doing the players that you uh, are ostensibly serving a disservice because they don't know what went wrong. They still have to prepare for this giant platform that they're about to have. And they probably right now don't necessarily feel like the FA um, has their best interests at heart for better or for worse. And so I think that it's, it's they're everyone's in kind of a tough spot. And it almost yeah. sounds to me like the players filled out these anonymous surveys and they had some constructive criticism on there and the constructive criticism got the coach fired. And now they're saying, whoa, wait a minute. We weren't writing this stuff down to get him fired, but that's kind of what happened. Now, again, there could be just one survey that has something on there that's enough to get him fired. So, you know, it's hard to say, and it's hard sometimes to just, you know, we're just trying to glean clues off social media, honestly, and some of these anonymous comments. But Kieran, what do you make of this, you know, now that it's a week old? Yeah, we saw the goalkeeper coach, uh, hand his resignation in this week as well, didn't we, Paul Jones? So clearly there is going to be more that comes out as a result of all of all of this. Well, news. it was it was originally, and I'll let you get back in a second. It was originally that the staff was toxic, right? So why was it just him that was let go, only let go in the first place? Yeah, and I, I think we'll see more. I think we'll see more. I think um, unfortunately for Alan, it's. It's him who's who's kind of taken the fall for for everyone else. But I imagine that what they've had to do is they've had to act quickly, make sure that what they who they see is the the person who's responsible for overseeing everything is is removed from his position, and then they continue to do investigations on on everyone else. It, it I mean, I, Claire and I spoke about it on the podcast with Chelsea last week, and and we were all pretty open about the fact that this one just came so far 
out of the blue and so far out of left field that it, it's really difficult to kind of comment fully because we have no insight into it. You know, it's it's clearly another situation where I don't like the word player, the words player power, because that makes it sound like the players are are the only responsible people for for Alan losing his job. Uh, I mean, as you said a little bit earlier, you know, the the observation was is that there was an, an issue that existed as way back as July last year, which I'm assuming would have been before these anonymous questionnaires were done. Um, you know, maybe back then the FFA questioned the players as to how bad a situation it was and, and they didn't feel that it was worthy of him losing his job. Um, you know, it may be that it got gradually worse. The other thing I would say is that, you know, players may well have come out on social media and I would never pick any individuals because as we've already said, we have very, very little insight into this one. But if I'm a player and if I see that the manager's been sacked and I see teammates commenting on on how good a job that he's done and how much of a shock it was, then regardless of what I feel about Alan, I'm probably going to follow suit because if I don't, then all of a sudden I'm under the spotlight as, oh, you know, so-and-so hasn't commented about Alan Stajic's sacking. Maybe they were one of the anonymous players that criticised him. I'm putting my name out there and I'm going to praise him or I'm going to at least acknowledge the job that he did. So I think this is a really difficult one and I think over time we will learn more and more as more information is made available. I would also say, I just want to say real quick, <clears throat> and again, I, I just always want to keep reiterating that I, I don't, know what's happening behind the scenes but this is an australia team that just four years ago had to go into open revolt against their own fa to get the support that they needed as a national team um one of the things about these women's teams and their relationships not only with their coaches but with their federations is that they are contentious sometimes and i think that um i think that international soccer in a lot of ways is is again it's um it's not transparent enough um you have things that are kept very private and i think that um the thing that you kept hearing from players was that they were surprised and they were dismayed and <clears throat> again if if something happened that should be communicated and it should be communicated because they not only care about the well-being of the team and wanting the team to succeed, but also transparency is the only way that that if there is a toxic environment that that kind of stuff gets you know stamped you know stomped out. So, um, yeah, I, I feel for the players in this situation, and it's exactly like Kieran said, where if there was someone or a number of players that had an issue with with their head coach, they probably are feeling incredibly unsupported right now, even though this action was taken. So the whole thing is just a giant mess. And, and they, uh, yeah, they had a two day workshop, which is what they call it on, I think Monday and Tuesday of this week, which was pre-planned. And there's, I, as far as I know, there was nothing on field. It was just getting together, chatting, kind of like a leadership conference to get the year started and they i think they want i think whenever they realized they were going to let stasha go i think they wanted it to happen before these two days but according to this bossy piece the players basically heard exactly what we heard over those two days which is regardless of what we heard unacceptable there's always you always need to have more information flowing inside the organization than out right yeah, hundred mm -hmm. percent. I think we we've seen that so many times. I learned, and it was it's unfortunate, but the the story that that Jeff and I broke about Mark Skinner leaving Birmingham to go to Orlando. I've learned since that the players had no idea, and the first that they learned of his departure was when our story went out there. So there is a lack of communication that that seems to be going on between you know, federations and coaches and federations and players and coaches and players. And, and unfortunately, it's going to become a, a situation where the game is now more professional. There's now more scrutiny. There's more eyes on it. And journalists are doing more digging and they're going to be get, trying to get information out of individuals that, you know, hasn't maybe been communicated to others. And it is going to be situations where individuals, players, whether, you know, whether it be players, Players, whether it be coaches, are going to be hearing information first from the media, rather than 
the people who should be communicating it to them. So there, there, there is definitely an issue that exists where players seem to be, which is wrong, the, the last people to know when, when these situations arise. And, and what I would say to that, because that's the same things happened to me, where I've gotten criticism for breaking news about a player that the player didn't know about. If I've got the information or if you and Jeff have the information about Mark Skinner, if it's gotten to you guys or to me, then the player should know about it by that point, right? Absolutely. That's my view, certainly. L- last thing on this. I find this a really tricky hire now because I don't know if I would want this job. I know they're good and maybe they can win. And even if you go to the semis or maybe take third place, you've taken a program where it's never gone before and then maybe you get a contract for the Olympics. But do you really want to walk into a job that is essentially a five-month trial by fire, not even knowing why the guy behind me got kicked out the door? Exactly. Nobody <laughs> wants the job. It's, it's, I think it's going to be tough. I mean, we've seen some I, I think you have, to, you have to take it down. I mean, look at the talent. Look at the talent that's on I that hear roster. You. I, I, hear I, know, you. I, know, I know that they have their issues. I know that... You know, they, they have some things they really need to work through. And, and clearly there is going to be a divide in that in that squad with players who clearly support Alan Stadic and those that maybe filled out that anonymous form and spoke out against him. But when you have one of the best strikers in the world in Sam Kerr, when you have unbelievably talented individuals like Steph Catley, Katrina Gorey, Emily Van Egmond, you know, the list is endless, Caitlin Ford, I think any head coach in the world, unless you are managing a top European side or a top international side, any manager should want that Australia job because there is a phenomenal amount of potential in that squad. And only, what, a year ago, maybe 18 months ago, when Australia won the Tournament of Nations, Mm -hmm. so many of us were saying this team is capable of winning the World Cup. And if they get the right I think they are still. I think they are as well. I totally agree with you. I still don't think that this, I know that the question has been posed on forums and on social media that, you know, does this damage Australia's chance of winning the World Cup? I don't think it does. Well, I still I think, think they've could. got a huge chance. I think they've still got a huge chance of winning this competition. What they need to do, they need to get the right coach in that can knit those players together because if they can knit them together and they're all singing off the same hymn sheet, there are very, very few teams in the world who are as talented and as well-balanced as the Australian team. They've got issues at the back. Defensively, I still think they've got some issues. But going forward, there are a few teams that are more exciting. And a good coach could necess- could potentially squeeze even more I, out of them. I completely agree. But a bad co- a bad hire could blow it up. So I don't ne- – you know, I agree that it doesn't necessarily hurt their chances. But I think they've got to make the right call here. This is a, I mean, every coaching hire is important. But I think – I think it's pivotal. When you say all reading off the same hymn sheet, I feel like that's a good time to end the conversation because that's a I like that line. So we're gonna we got some sky blue news to talk about as well. We'll take uh, some listener questions as well. This is the end of segment two of episode forty four of Equalizer Podcast. and final segment of the Equalizer podcast. This is episode 44. My name is Dan Lawletta. I've got Claire Watkins here and the birthday boy, Kieran Tavum. A couple news and notes items. Poliana waived by Orlando. Kieran was asking off mic, does that free up an international roster spot? That got us all interested to see who we could think about maybe joining Orlando, but it's been a very quiet NWSL offseason. And Chelsea got beat at home this weekend by Birmingham City on an Ellen White stoppage time goal. And that really crushes their chances. They had started off kind of even. They were moving up the table, but that really is a crushing blow in their chase of Arsenal and Manchester City for the uh, Super League title in England. And don't forget, two of those spots go to the Champions League. So a rough weekend for Chelsea. All right, let's get to questions and answers and we're going to start with what do you what else besides sky blue five stripes forever 
Two weeks left for Sky Blue, and Tony Novo needs to fix the situation. Any updates we got so far? And the two weeks is in reference to the fact that Tony Novo said he'll have good news within 30 days. This past Friday was the midway point of that 30 days. I don't think that literally means he's got to fix everything in two weeks. But new news came out this week that the bunch of players believe that the bigger problem than the conditions there is the head coach. And I know Kieran and I both have spoken to different individuals privately who have said, yes, that is the truth. Um, as you know, I don't call for coaches or anybody else to lose jobs on here or on social media or anywhere else. But what a complete mess at Sky Blue. Uh, they're not going to have Mace. They're not going to have Ashley. Uh, players may or may not like the coach. And we'll see if this good news is coming or not. What do you guys have on this? Oh, I'm, I'm genuinely... I wouldn't like to use the term fed up of talking about Sky Blue because that sounds disrespectful. I think it's almost I feel sad that I'm having to talk about Sky Blue again because every week it seems to be something different, doesn't it? We obviously had the news this week that, that Julia Ashley had confirmed her move to Lin Sherping and had the the interview with, with John Halloran that I think we have to give John a massive shout out because that yes. story went all over the country into mainstream media and... You know, Julia was very open with John, wasn't she, in that she had already told Sky Blue, if you draft me, I'm not coming to play for you anyway. Her, her quote clearly not got the matter. No, absolutely not. And, and this is what I'm saying. She was very open and very honest. And unfortunately, we're seeing it in, in other situations as well, aren't we? Chelsea and, and Claire and I spoke about Hayley Mace last week with her move to Melbourne. And, and obviously, the... The W League doesn't infringe on the NWSL. So in reality, Hayley May should be coming back to the NWSL for when the season starts. But obviously our understanding is that she's not going to do that and she could be going in the same direction as Julia Ashley to Sweden or possibly to Germany or maybe even France. So, you know, there is there is underlying problems there that we have, as we as you said earlier, that 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 individuals and sources have, have been able to kind of confirm that it, it may be down not just to things off the field, but things on the field as well. And when you have that combination of problems off the field and coaching issues on the field, it just it just all adds up to one big mess, doesn't it? And you, you really do wonder where this dark tunnel that Sky Blue currently sit in is going to shed any light. You just don't go 23 straight without winning a game just because things are poor off the field. That's all I'll say about that. Claire, do we need to jump in or should we move on? No, I mean, <laughs> like Kieran, uh, yeah, I feel like I'm talking about Sky Blue all the time. I'm not sure I have anything else to add at this point other than um, when Christina Gibbons uh, retired, I had some pause on her career, only just that um, she was dealt a tough hand off the field, but her misuse on the field is one that you can definitely point to some very specific soccer decisions. Um, Agreed, and I totally. think, yeah. And I think that sky blue's story leads us not to want to talk about specifically soccer decisions. Cause we're trying to do a holistic view of that club. Um, so I fully believe that there are issues not only with the vision off the field, but also on. All right. Woso Region asks, do you think there will be any other major transfers this offseason? I still want to say yes. We mentioned Orlando. Them and Portland are the teams to watch. I think Utah already did their thing. Um, but I, as quiet as it's been, I think there'll be a, at least reasonably big one coming. Jay Lorch fan, can you see any team that might make Sky Blue a trade for Mace? I mean, obviously, yes. I think any team would. I mean, she wants to be in the league and... Um, yeah, I think teams would trade for her. My understanding is that the asking price so far has been high, which is understandable. You don't want to just, um, you know, trade a player just because they don't want to be there. Uh, I think sometimes players need to realize when it becomes public that they don't want to be somewhere. It actually hurts the possibility of them getting moved because it's now, you know, all the other teams realize that Sky Blue is under the gun. 
Um, so I, you know, I don't expect him to just take the best offer, but I mean, I don't, is there a team that wouldn't want Haley Mace if she wants to play in this country? No, no, is a simple answer to that one. Yep. One more from Jay Lorch fan. Sam Kerr is clearly an amazing player. What do you think her best plan would be to continue her growth after the 2019 NWSL season? I've got a contrarian view on this, so you guys go first. Um, I think Sam Kerr should do whatever she wants. I don't know. Um, yeah, I think that's when you have a player that that, that is that good. Um, she should do whatever she wants. I don't know what that is, but um, she should be able to write her own ticket. Obviously. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna play the kind of regional bias card here, but <laughs> yeah. I would I would. Right. Well, I would like to see Sam come to Europe, and, I, and I'll tell you why I'd like to see Sam come to Europe. Because Europe equals England, by the way, for that regional not, bias. No, no, not necessarily England, but I, I will tell you why. Because there are a lot of debates and conversations about who is the best player in the world. Mm. And the names that come up constantly are names that haven't played in Europe and the United States. So we've got Pernilla Harda has proved herself in Sweden and Germany hasn't played in the United States. We've got Ada Hegerberg, has played in France and Germany, hasn't played in the United States. We've got Sam Kerr, played in the United States, hasn't played in Europe. So the players that tend to be top of the pile haven't played on both sides of the pond. And I would like to see a player prove themselves on both sides of the pond. And, and that's why I think Kim Little is so highly respected, because Kim Little has shown what she is able to do in Europe and she showed what she was able to do in the NWSL. And if you are able to show on both sides of the pond, in my view, then you have a very genuine case for being respected as one of the best players, if not the best player in the world. So I'm, I'm you know, I, as, a, as, a, as an NWSL follower, as someone who covers the league, I am more than happy to see Sam in the NWSL playing for Chicago, whoever it might be. But if Sam is genuinely looking to be rated as the best player in the world, I don't think it does her any harm to come over to Europe. I think that's a great and fair point. Um, my contrarian view, and I agree with Claire about this in all other player matters and many matters, really. You should do whatever you want within the context of the rules that are in front of you. But I kind of think she likes playing in the U.S., and I think she likes going home to Australia, and I kind of feel like as long as those seasons continue to run uh, in concert with each other, that I, maybe that is the best thing for her. I, but that's a real good point, Kieran, about you know proving it on both sides of the pond. Here's a good one. Joe Williams, if you had to decide on bubble players for the USWNT roster, who are your last three players in and first three out? I don't know. I, don't, I haven't like sat down and done the 23. But um, can we talk about Sam Mewis for a minute? Because I think can she's you, in the 23. But Before, before so you do far? that, as a Brit, what is a bubble player? Bubble player is, you know, like the last three players in or out, like <laughs> players who are on, on the fringe of being on Crystal, the roster. Basically, basically, we're all still obsessed with Crystal Dunn in 2015, <laughs> and we would right. like to know who that's going to be this year. I've never heard the term bubble player before. I love that. That's yeah. great. I'm sure out there somewhere, someone wants to know if Allie Krieger is on that <laughs> bubble somewhere. Um, but is, why is Sam Mueller so far down the death chart? Bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. Yeah. I, I mean, Sam was Sam was one of the best U.S. women's national team players in 2017. She had an injury at the start of 2018, which disrupted her start to the campaign. I mean... Sam Sam is one of those players who I think can be a real difference maker for the US. I think mean, she's box to box. She can protect the back four. She can support the forward players. I am as confused as you are, Dan. I had a chance to speak to her while I was out in Alicante. And Sam is just the most enthusiastic player you will come across. I spoke to her for 20 minutes. And for the whole time, she just had this huge smile on her face because she loves playing for the US women's national team. She loves playing soccer. And I think when you have someone who's is, who has that enthusiasm, they take it onto the pitch. And she plays like that. She plays with, with the, the kind of aura of someone who genuinely enjoys being on the field. And she is a proper team player as well. She said to me, like, 
when she's not playing, her responsibility in training is to make the players around her better. Now, that for me is the ultimate individual who is looking not just from a selfish perspective, but from a team perspective. But while making the players around her better, the best way for her to do that is to be on the field. 2017, she was absolutely phenomenal. A small injury at the start of 2018 should not be a reason for her to all of a sudden slip down the depth chart as far as she has. So I'm as confused as you are. Right, but that's the weird But that's the weird thing about the U.S., isn't it? Like, you have players... Like, Sam Mewis is very interesting because she didn't make the final 20 in 2016. In 2017, she was undroppable. She started every match for the U.S., she got knocked up at the be- at the beginning of 2018 and is now having trouble breaking into the lineup again. Whereas I think you have other players who have had issues with injuries who the understanding is once they're fit again, they have a spot. And so I think this is, is one of the inconsistencies with the way that the U.S. does their roster, which is I think the way they handle injury is on a very case-by-case basis. And so someone like Sam Mewis, it's stark because what was it? She played in every U.S. game in 2017? I think so. Yeah, Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. And then in 2018 is now struggling to even get a full 45 in these friendlies. And I, it, it is definitely something where you watch these and you can't figure it out because she is such a good player and her her value to the team hasn't changed. There's, you know, there's no rational reason why she's less of a good fit. But um, whereas you have other players who have had trouble getting fit for a long time, again, you know, the rehabilitation of Morgan Bryan has been ongoing for a very long time. And I'm a Morgan Bryan fan. I think she can be very good. But um, it definitely seems like the team has more patience with some players than with others. And that and Mor- can be frustrating to see. Morgan Bryan bu- has to be a bubble player at this point, though, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think um, I- I've said this before. I think she is right now. I think we talked about this last week. She's competing with Danny Colaprico right now for the spot, I think, on the, one of the roster. One of these next couple weeks, we'll sit down and on the pod and do it on the fly roster of 20. Can I, can I bring up one more, though? Yeah, yeah. Mallory Pugh did not have oh, a good week. Oh, controversial, Claire. I know. Controversial. Down to the bubble of 23? I, I, here's what I think. I don't think she's not going. But if you were okay. asking me personally, who's my top three in and top three out, I'm not sure Mallory Pugh's on that top 23 for me right now. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's... I, I would have to really sit down and crunch the numbers a little bit, but yeah. she certainly has not gotten back to where she was pre-injury. There's no doubt about that. And back to Mewis for a second. She told me basically what you were saying on me, Kieran, at the NWSL championship about the North Carolina courage. As I said, you know, it's been a different year for you. You know, you came back from injury and it took a while to get back in the lineup. And she basically said, you know, nobody needed, you know, there was no nothing that said I needed to be back in the lineup. I'm here to do whatever. Paul wants me to do. And a lot of players say that, but especially when you talk to them face to face, sometimes you get the sense they're just saying it because, you know, that's what is supposed to appear in the, in the quote. But when Sam Mewis said it, I felt like, like I felt it. I felt like she completely and totally meant it. One more to go. Carrie Paraleski. Question for next week's pod. This was a midweek question, so just want you to know that we're fishing these out of the uh, hashtag EQZ pod. Um, so you wrote an article regarding Blueprint to Beat USA, assuming team is aware of this and um, what they need to do to combat this. Now they can break a bunker, but how about high pressure? I'm assuming this was Jeff's piece that was written after the oh, wow. Spain match. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think the Blueprint is that you know the U.S. is better than... Probably every team in the world, you know, maybe there are three or four teams that can be better than them on a day, but I don't think they need to. I think even if you've got the game plan to beat them, I don't think the U.S. needs to be too worried because they're good. I mean, to me, it just goes back to the question of how hard the U.S. was trying against France. Um and you don't mean with, like trying on the field, but like in terms of game plan and personnel. Right, right exactly. Or the goals that they had right. out of that game. Right. 
Um, whereas I don't think they were trying to unlock the press other than just adapting on the field. So, you know, it's a good game plan, but I think you're right. I think probably maybe not nine times out of 10 anymore, maybe like six times out of 10, seven times out of 10, the U S figures that out. Yeah. Look, Claire's pretty much hit the nail on the head. I think in response to the question, the US, if anything, probably benefit more from those teams that have a high press because it gives them an opportunity to counter very quickly when they're high up the field. Every team, every good team, no matter how strong they are, will have their difficulties against teams that bunker. We've seen it so many times. England, I've seen play against some really poor European teams that will just for 90 minutes put 11 players behind the ball and England might only win by one or two goals. But the real test of a good side is how you adapt and how you look to break down that that kind of stubbornness that teams will have. But I think the US's strength, now we didn't see that against France because of the reasons that we've discussed earlier in this pod and on the previous pod. But I actually think the US benefit more from teams that will press them high up the field because as soon as they release those wingers, whether it be Megan Rapino, Tobin Heath or Malpew or whoever it might be, they've got so much space in behind because the team has pressed them high up the field. So I think they're as good against you know a high press as they are against the team that bunkers. But the challenge for a coach is always trying to figure out the best way to beat the opposition. I'm going to also say this. If they play <laughs> if they play France in the World Cup, they will win handily. Handily, they will beat France in the World Cup. You heard it here. Probably not first, <laughs> but you heard it here. Hashtag EQZ, P-O-D, EQZ pod for questions. You can send them as early or late as you want. We'll try to get them in. Apologies if we missed your question <laughs> this week. But that'll do it for another episode of the Equalizer podcast for Claire. And Kieran, this is Dan, and you've been listening to episode 44 of that Equalizer podcast. Thank you for listening to the Equalizer podcast. The views and opinions expressed are those of the hosts and do not necessarily represent those of Equalizer Soccer. We thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.